Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is March 10th, 2020. The coronavirus panic is growing by the hour and we'll get to that in a moment. But in the meantime, thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast where we force ourselves to talk about climate change, especially with our friends, because there is simply a lack of opportunity to talk about climate change with our friends in more conventional social settings, parties, for example, weddings, whatever, because you don't want to talk about climate change at parties. Life's too short for such an upsetting topic, right? While we're still alive and well, we want to talk about more pleasant things, things we can laugh about, bond over with our friends. That's totally fair. But at the same time, this also creates a kind of need, lest it be forever suppressed, for a space where we can talk about the most important issue of our time, climate change, with our friends, no matter how difficult. And climate change therapy is that space. We have a very special guest for you today. His name is Miranda de las Calles. He works in media, is an artist, has experience walking in circles by, uh, shared by anarchists, I believe, anarchists, uh, a native of... Nicaragua, Philadelphia transplant of one year. But first, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Roland Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Roland Cases, whether you're walking El Camino or you're hitching an Uber home from the Philadelphia airport because your flight's been canceled thanks to the coronavirus and your company policy that when you return from work after travel, you can't go in for 14 days. Roland Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Roland Cases. And with that, Ladies, gentlemen, listeners, old and new, I bring you Miranda Dallas Caius. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, now there's a little music break. <laughs> <laughs> First. <laughs> Right, Miranda, Mr. Uh, Delas Caius, uh, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on to the program today. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Were there any second thoughts about making the trip uh, north up to, to the studio because of the coronavirus out there? Um, great question. A lot of yesterday during my house meeting, we actually talked a lot about corona and we've decided to start stockpiling cans of food in case we need to quarantine so it's definitely a very real thing that is on people's mind and i work in public schools so whatever Mm. happens they're going to react to it first because because of everybody there but you you don't know what you're against until it comes face to face to you and i still haven't seen that face to face yeah um the public schools you work in here in in philadelphia do have they taken any policies because of it are they are, are, is attendance down? Are there uh, uh, closures on the horizon? So right now, the only thing that I've seen that's different is there's more like information on how to wash your hands and just coronavirus 101. Because I work with media and after school programs, we're now doing videos about coronavirus with my students, just like what to do, how to um, combat it, how like how the media is reacting to it. But in terms of policy, they they're just doing this like as they go and as soon as one case happens i assume they're gonna a lot of my teachers think they're actually gonna close school yeah it's in philadelphia now and people are saying that even proactive closure is is good yeah but at the same time there's all these economic effects parents have to stay home with their kids it's it's a tough call 
Yeah, and and because I I work with teachers, I know they're so overworked and they would welcome school closures so they could have a, a week off and the and the students as well. But it is a logistical nightmare if you have one case, but but I think the Philadelphia Department of Education has also dealt with like asbestos mm-hmm. in a couple right, schools. Right. So that generated an entire kind of intense logistical dramatic moving students around and everything so we'll see what happens right the school district is they um they have experience with closures because of chemicals (laughs) um it's debatable how well they've handled it but sure um so taking a a step back from the virus uh, what, what are you what are you doing in the schools by the way so i'm a media instructor which means that i train teachers and students how to use cameras to make their own documentaries, their own podcasts, their own photography and incorporate media more into the classrooms so that a class, instead of having to do like an essay, they could do like a PSA or they could do like a a music video or Mm. they could do like a history video because it's part of an effort to just create more media literacy in a public school so that teachers are media literate and they're adapting to like the rapidly changing world yeah so high schools it's i work in middle schools and in high schools all public yeah yeah cool um what's uh what's your favorite lesson that you've taught in the last month let's limit it to that oh wow in the last month let's see how about about uh what it was how about last week last week so i again because of this coronavirus i'm basically doing the same template in the three schools that I work and each each school is just like reacting to it differently. Mm-hmm. And I just I my approach is very like lighthearted and, and full of jokes and stuff like that. So like like today we're talking about like the weather and we we cut to a news reporter outside and she just says it's out outside and then we cut to like back to the inside. Mm-hmm. So it's really fun to 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 like do like fake news reports about like whatever you want to do like how to wash your hands like washing your hands for like two minutes just an entire like one take of like a two minute public service announcement exactly but exaggerating things a little bit to just kind of point to to the to the hysteria a little bit cool how's the uh the acting talent um that's that's the worst part like it's the acting we need to do we do up to like i know like Stanley Kubrick does like famously 150 takes, uh-huh. but out of passion, we do 150 takes out of necessity. <laughs> okay. Like, each, what is it? Memorizing well, lines? Is it no, lack of emotion? No. What is like, it? Like, not even. We 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 have we don't have a teleprompter, but we do have. They write the lines themselves. They practice it, but as soon as you click record in the camera, they choke over and over again. Mm. So it's. That's I would say eighty percent of my work is actually just like waiting for the right take. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right, uh, Delas Caius, I see. Um, so b- before you uh, came over here, we exchanged a few few articles. We had a, a few things we wanted to talk about specifically. I think what's interesting about your background, um, I mean, you have a very very interesting background. But one is that you've walked in in circles with anarchists. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that exactly? And, and how also, how do you define anarchy? Yeah. And, and also, does anarchy, where does anarchy exist in, in uh, human society, in the animal kingdom? 
So in college, I studied in Warren Wilson. It was a uh, 800 students work study. So everybody worked for the college to pay part of our tuition. So it was very kind of like socialist in that way. Like everybody has a job, everybody gets paid the same, everybody has like an input in how to run the school. So there were a lot of, it has a history of like radical organizing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just started going to like food not bombs meetings. Basically, we dumpster dive a bunch of food, coffee shops donate food, and every Sunday we cook all morning and then give all the food away. It mm. was in that space where a lot of like punks and like radical environmentalists and like anarchists started hanging out and running that space and I I I was immediately surrounded by all this like literature and and thoughts and specifically I was so um, I was so disillusioned by like the democratic electoral politics, like basically um, minimizing political participation to just voting. And because I'm from right. Nicaragua, I know that voting doesn't do anything because we already know who was going to win the elections. The only thing that are missing are the elections. Right. <laughs> That's a joke yeah. um, that we say a lot, a lot over there. So it was through like food not bombs that a lot of people were critiquing like activism on campus and how it was so pro-democrats very liberal in the superficial way of analyzing stuff so it was through anarchists that i that i adopted this analysis of of hierarchies and, and domination so basically mm -hmm. anarchism critiques hierarchies um political hierarchies social hierarchies gender hierarchies um racial hierarchies as a way to propose a more horizontal um, egalitarian but like radical kind of libertarian view of, of what society should be and how it should be organized uh -huh. so that was really fruitful because it kind of gave humans more chance to like actively and proactively participate and right. it was just it just it just clicked and it just made sense and of course if i would have been in a group that studied more like Marxist Leninist, I would have probably been a Marxist Leninist. Or mm -hmm. if it was a Trotskyist, I would have probably been done that. So it's like by chance that I hung out with these anarcho punk dudes and that's why I became that. Mm. And that chance you said you mentioned Warren Wilson is yeah. where you went. And where is that school? So that's in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. And and that's you went there directly from Nicaragua. Yeah. You went to Asheville. So did you choose that school knowing that um it had a strong anarchist presence? No, absolutely not. Okay, so I anarchy, mean, you kind of fell into situationally yeah. by being at that school. Yeah. Um, and in high school, I was kind of like the only hippie environmentalist. Like I run mm -hmm. a recycling campaign. I was like very liberal, kind of like your attitude can change the world kind of <laughs> a stuff. So I went to, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. to this very hippie school and they, they honestly, they offered the most financial aid than other places. I almost went to a, a Buddhist university in, in Boulder, Colorado, but it was there that I was more like radicalized through, through my friends, honestly, not even through the institution itself, but by, by my friends that were there. And then to answer your question of like, where can we see anarchy at play in like the animal kingdom? Oh yeah. There's this beautiful book uh, by Peter Kropotkin, one of the, the most legendary anarchist writers. And he talks about mutual aid and how he critiques like the Darwinistic view of nature. And he actually claims that animals that cooperate with each other are more likely to survive than animals that compete against each other. 
So he has a number of of of, of evidence. He's also a, a ecologist and a biologist that that shows animals not really competing in this kind of capitalist way. They actually kind of love to share and take care of each other in ways that don't benefit themselves personally. But mm. if you want a more specific example, I would say um, bonobo monkeys mm. are an extremely matriarchal society based on care, based on responsibility, based on horizontal kind of relationships. And they don't have like a, a leader of the pack. Like everything is done communally mm. and they offer like this non-Darwinian way of, of thinking of, of, of animal behavior and animal nature. Mm-hmm. So I have some questions there about, I, I'm, I'm a total a layman when it comes to anarchy. So I might, I'm going to be asking questions from the perspective of someone who doesn't know anything about the subject to be fair. And so some of my questions is about the nature of competition versus cooperation. So um, to say that, that, that capitalism is, is on the side of competition and that anarchy is, is um, cooperation um, there. I think you, there could also people in favor of capitalism might argue that actually for capitalism to function, it takes uh, profound cooperation as as well. And that um, one of the, the unintended consequences or one of the downfalls of anarchy is it does create competition for resources when you don't have cooperation at a, at a massively say, you know, government controlled uh, scale with thing public things in the public interest in mind. And then you have the tragedy of the commons where everybody is just yeah. eating each other's, you know, crops. Um, so I, w- I want to ask about that, but also um, you mentioned being in a uh, co-op or you were in a co-op. Yeah. So Did you say in, that in it, I currently live in a communal home. So there's right. eight of us live in a beautiful house. And, and there's no leader, meetings. no leader. We have weekly meetings when we make important decisions about the house, like what okay. to buy, where to invest, what events are coming up um, and stuff like that. And that's actually the fourth communal home that I've lived at Warren Wilson. I started two different co-ops. Mm-hmm. One was um, a, a, a network of rooms that we called the free state Basically, we took advantage of the bureaucracy of the institution, and my my three friends and I ended up with four separate like dorm rooms that we that that we liberated, meaning that we shared the keys and everybody had access to all these dorm rooms. So mm-hmm. we had a network of rooms that anybody could use to like to study, to sleep, to party, and stuff like that. And then back home in Nicaragua, I lived in a communal home called La Rizoma, which was um, a cultural center and, and it had a committee of of nine people myself and, and my eight best friends and we all collectively made decisions about the house. I mean, I did own the house so I had that kind of symbolic power there but I was sure to like share okay. the wealth and everything. I got you. So I think one of the misconceptions for people who, about anarchy for people that don't know anything about anarchy is um, you think it means no rules. But in a co-op, there is a there is a social structure. You know, you have meetings. Um, there are house rules, right? You can't just like leave your shit everywhere. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's a difference that we we claim. There's a difference between government and a nation state. Government. Okay. I mean, the Zapatistas have a Zapatista government, and their their government is horizontal and participatory. The Rojava Revolution has a government. 
but they're not organized in a hierarchical wave a way of a precedent and then delegates and then electoral politics i mean mm -hmm. government is just the way that you organize but it does involve a certain level of responsibility and bureaucracy and meetings and decision makings um as a way to make decisions um, in a way that benefits everybody, but everybody has equal opportunity to to participate or to delegate people that can participate. Gotcha. Fascinating. So I want to tie this up into climate change. Um, you shared with me this uh, this text called A Desert by Anonymous. Um, can you explain um, why you shared this particular text with me? I'd never heard of it, but you were saying that in anarchist circles, it's kind of you know biblical in a way. Yeah, so at Warren Wilson, I was working in environmental justice. So a lot of my activism on campus had to do with our environmental issues. And our little crew of, of like eight of us, we were all kind of like very radical thinkers. And it was actually in our junior year that we stumbled across this text that just kind of articulated a, a environmental pessimism that our young college selves had at the moment in terms of the world is not getting better everything is getting worse there's no future no hope and it's like very very angsty nihilistic kind of view but at the moment it made a lot of sense and the more we read onto it the more we kind of like bought into this idea but it's basically a very radical understanding of the situation of the world right now from a anti-capitalist point of view, which was very refreshing than a sustainable kind of pro-capitalist green energy kind of analysis of climate change. And, and mm. what was so productive of this reading is what it was, it was like brutal. And also it, it says like, there's things are a lot worse than we, than we can ever imagine. And, all of this talk that things are going to get better, we should be very suspicious of it because actually data and social movements and states point that things are actually going to get worse. Mm -hmm. um, so I read the first say four chapters, about the first 25 out of 50 pages um, to it. And at first, uh, I'll just tell you my impression so far. And, and I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'm, I'm going to... To finish reading it um i will say that you know again not an anarchist uh not even an anti-capitalist but just someone who cares about climate change and uh, is in need of therapy for it um and loves talking to interesting people who have um, a wide range of opinions about the subject um, so my first impressions was that it was definitely like overtly you know anti-capitalist and anarchist and I had that kind of first impression, but as I read on, I kind of like was able to relate it more. Like he was, he was the author um, anonymous was speaking very much like my professor at Penn for energy policy, who was an economist. Um, and they were talking, they actually had the same prediction how um, eventually the global population would go back to 1 billion people. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, so that's the same as my capitalist economist, uh, professor so i didn't find his view uh the writer he or she the writer's views like incompatible with um the views of of a capitalist um necessarily and and also i found it interesting the distinction he made 
between um, anarchism and, and Marxism and how sometimes people conflate them and they just lump them both into the buckets of, of radical left, but they're very different. From my reading, he was saying that to be anarchist is to be anti-state and to be Marxist is to be in favor of a huge state apparatus. So I did, I did pick that up. Um, and what, and, uh, I guess the, the, another thing that I wanted to mention, the part I'm at right now is he kind of posed this question of, we kind of have two directions where that we can go in as a society, um, we can be, go into the machine age and, and have this advanced state-controlled technological civilization, or we can go back to kind of hunter-gatherers and it's kind of an anarchist environmentalist um, in a way. So that's kind of where I'm at now, and those are just uh, a few of my impressions. Um, but it, but just to, to uh, address the, 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 the first part of what I said, um, did, did the part about... Uh, him being anarchist and capitalism, capitalist, how does that influence what the text is about? Because to me, I read it just as someone who was talking about the realities of, of climate change um, and what might, and imposing a possible future, very diff, independent of what his ideology was. Yeah, and I, I just want to preface this that this is, I picked this test, this this text also because of all the questions it opens up. I don't necessarily endorse this. At the moment, it had a big impact on me. And now I can kind of see where it came from and under what, what perspectives. So so I think it was so influential. And, and I'll touch upon the, the things that you talked about. Number one, because it, it completely, it challenges this like, technological optimism mm. that is like capitalism will will right will innovate our way out of the problem yeah and right. and one of the claims it makes is that capitalism will benefit from climate change like climate like capitalism through through let's say the 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 ice um, ice melting will open up new trade routes. Right, in the Arctic, will, like yeah, what we're seeing already. Exactly. Yeah. Like with climate change, we'll have more privatization because more companies will want to keep their reserves of, of water or, or or land. Like mm -hmm. capitalists will... We, we had the assumption that climate change was going to force capitalism to change. We had the assumption, us anarchists. We being anarchists, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we okay. thought that climate change was going to prove that capitalism is unsustainable but this text says the opposite it says like capitalism will not be abolished through the crisis that's going to emerge from climate change mm. instead capitalism is going to gain more strength mm. we're going to see more eco-fascism we're going to see more privatization we're going to see more militarization of right. of natural resources capitalism and possibly communism but it, the state apparatus can exactly gain the state apparatus yeah exactly and and we're going to like climate is going to become a national security issue, as Bernie has said over and over again too. how the mm. nation state is going to see climate change. And instead of seeing it as an opportunity to critique the entire system, it's going to see it as an opportunity to reinforce right. the state and capitalism. Um, there's an example. Um, there's this speech from Obama talking about the Green Hornet, which is this fighter jet that's run on biofuels mm -hmm. and it's basically this capitalist mentality military mentality of like 
we now justify war because our tanks and our planes and our boats are run on biofuels. Mm. And that's the main thing that us anarchists are critiquing, that climate change and and capitalism aren't really changing the the social relationships between people. They're just reinforcing the social relationships that already exist, which right. are hierarchies and domination and viewing nature as something to to extract right. and to and to and to take out of. And so, some of these predictions have been pressing. You said this was written about fifteen years ago. Yeah. Roughly. So there's points in this early on where he's writing about how it will lead to the rise of um, dictators essentially because you'll have weakened states that'll make it easy for people to come in and seize power you know you've seen um, Xi Jinping in China become he's president for life now you have Ortega in yeah. Nicaragua who I do want uh, you to talk about a little bit uh, later on um, see even like Putin in Russia yeah, is exactly. the most powerful man in the world and I mean you even see like 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 Trumpism in America is a lot of what what he was saying where it's this kind of um, yeah this 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 weakened state and this this populist demand you know and there is a little bit that it it kind of enters more into like conspiracy theory kind of realm but something that my dad uh, a very adamant reader and and conspiracist he would say like isn't it suspicious that China is buying and investing so much in Latin America and in Africa in terms of controlling key natural resources but a more real example is. Nicaragua is controlled by Canadian mining companies. So private Canadian mining companies own key natural resources in Nicaragua, and they're privatized, and they exploit people, and they're destroying the environment. Huh. Um, what are What's being mined in Nicaragua? Gold. Gold. Yeah, Nicaragua actually, are, are, I think our third or fourth largest export is, is gold. So B two gold, I f- like Nicaragua is, isn't it GDP-wise, it's one of the lowest yeah. countries. And, and and its biggest exporter is gold. It's yeah. It's 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 cattle, basic grains, coffee, up. and then gold. Yeah, that's like that's as like perverted and inverted as like the idea how in America, like the lower income you are, the more obese you are. Yeah, like it just doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. their biggest export is gold, and they're one of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. because it's in because it's not. I mean, what like Venezuela or Cuba would have done is like they nationalized the gold productions and then that kind of money goes into the bigger state, which we also critique as anarchists. But like all of the main environmental exploitation that's happening in Nicaragua is through private companies. And if you compare it to Costa Rica, that has a lot more policy and regulation and more like environmental respect even if it's aesthetically mm-hmm. the change is very very clear i think it would be helpful for our listeners and, and me as well um to hear from you a little bit about the situation in nicaragua really quickly as a digression before we get back into okay into this book um because it, it's it seems to me that a lot of your um kind of the attraction of anarchy to you is 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 a result in many ways of the situation going on in Nicaragua. So uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to just hear in your own words, you kind of summarize what's what's happening there. Yeah, and, and for also for listeners to understand more where I'm coming from. So basically, I'll go really fast. Um, both my parents like supported the Sandinista Revolution in the 80s. So they were like really, really pro-social justice and anti 
kind of like right-wing U.S. intervention in Nicaragua in the 80s. In the 90s, everything drastically changed and we adopted neoliberal policies because the Revolutionary Party ended. So the 90s were a, a period of extreme poverty because of the structural economic re readjustments that a lot of countries around the world were, were facing. So basically less state, more private um, investings and, and infrastructure. So growing up in the middle of all that poverty was kind of a direct relationship to like the very hard economic policies that were being in place. But then on top of that, in 2008, um, the Revolutionary Party get, comes back to power promising a lot of social programs and a lot of radical changes. But what we see is the capitalist private um, class gain even more power. So we see even more development and more industrialization and more privatization in the hands of a so-called socialist government. And that kept boiling until 2018. There was a nationwide popular insurrection, popular uprising of the working class, of the middle class against government repression. And then the government, instead of negotiating instead escalated with violence up to the point where 300 people were killed which is a lot for a small country like Nicaragua which forced me and my entire generation of progressive minded um, left-wing radicals to have to leave the country and live in in self-selective or actual exile gotcha um, and so I also did a little research on this topic last night just to kind of have it in my own words I'm going to try the same um, the same summary as you did, um, slightly different, and you're just going to fact check me. Okay. Okay. So Daniel Ortega, current president of Nicaragua. Yes. The vice president is his wife. Rosario Murillo. Rosario Murillo. Um, he first became president in, in the mid-80s by de uh, defeating a previous dictatorship. Yeah. Um, he served one term and then got voted out in a, in a free election. Yeah. And then there were a few more free elections. Uh, and then he got got voted back into office in 2006. Yeah. He ran again. So he, after a 16-year uh, layoff, he ran again in 2006, and he's been the president ever since. Yes. And he's held elections that um, have been called you know, fake elections, basically. Um, so he's basically turned himself into a, a dictator and having originally overthrown a dictator. Yeah. So one. So the revolution over dictatorship and now the revolution— Becoming a dictatorship in itself can cre can create a certain disillusionment in government for someone like yourself. Yeah, exactly. And and what we're claiming is that Ortega betrayed the revolutionary ideas of the 80s. Mm -hmm. We are claiming that he's become the very thing that he was fighting against. He became a dictatorship and he was... And by dictatorship, we, th we mean like adopting very right-wing policies. Mm -hmm. Like being anti-LGBT, anti-feminism, anti... Unions anti a lot of these things that were supposed to be a so-called like socialist government Like I don't claim I don't think that he's a socialist mm -hmm. I think a lot of people read him that way, but if you see his policies, he's actually like center-right government hmm. Okay, well, I think that that there's a lot of information there and I encourage listeners if you to, to definitely read more about the situation going on in, in Nicaragua a lot of crazy stuff going on with the uh, American CIA and the the 1990s um it's kind of there's a there's a lot of a lot of history um 
a lot of history there. Um, but let's let's get back uh, into this this text. Um, I had a question that I wanted to to ask you about um, that seemed to be posed at a certain point. Um, James Lovelock, uh, the guy uh, environmentalist, he talks about the Gaia theory: is Earth alive? I do want to get to that later, but the, he was quoted um, in in this piece, "Desert" by Anonymous. As we now face the stark choice between a return to natural life as a small band of hunters or a much reduced high-tech civilization. So my question is, I, I've, I found this to be a really fascinating line, and I, I highlight it because it's something that I've believed for, for a while. I'm, I've been accused of being somewhat of a Luddite and anti-machine person myself as well. Um, you know, but, but also, like, I, do, I believe in certain advantages of markets and, and civilization. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, if we face that stark choice between a return to natural life as a small band of hunters or a leap to a much um, to, to high tech civilization, what would be your choice? Yeah, absolutely. So so at the beginning, my choice will be more high tech and that might be uh, that might be surprising. But yeah. Um, this main text has been critiqued by being like very what's called anarcho-primitivist, which is another current mm. of anarchism that is basically against civilization, against machinery, because their analysis is that as soon as we built machines, something horrible happened with the human spirit. That machine started dominating us instead of the other way around. So they advocate for abolishing civilization, technological oh, wow. civilization, and going back to more um, experiential, personal, small-scale relationships yeah. of direct democracy and stuff like that. Romanticism, like it's, anarchist it, primitism, primitivism? Um, Anarcho-primitivism. Ah. And they have a lot of strand with like the anarchists that are also Christians because they see the analysis of going back to the Garden of Eden as, yeah. Yeah. as the ultimate goal of God, so therefore... Mm you see a return more, to the promised land yeah. exactly more of like a direct contact with nature and with our bodies and with everything romantic austerity yeah but immediately critiques of that is that it's very like ableist like it assumes a lot of things that technology is like inherently evil and can't be used to good and and has a weird relationship with medicine and all this stuff but but going back to my answer that i see a future that we can use technology to actually create more biodiversity. We can use technology to actually repair all the damage that capitalism has created. We can use technology to liberate people. Like I'm not against automation. Automation. I'm not against automation. I'm just against automation inside of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like if, if imagine if, if like Tesla was unionized in a cooperative I have nothing against that because the workers would directly benefit from machines building stuff instead of just one person. Like mm -hmm. I am for automation because it releases, it gives more space for leisure and play and creativity if the wealth generated through machines is actually distributed to the public. But we have automation and technology with a capitalist view as basically generating more wealth to the 1%, to the bosses, to the upper classes, and further uh -huh. creating a divide between people. So what what specifically would... 
is there is there any examples in history that you could ha- that has a, a technologically advanced uh, uh, machinistic society that's not capitalist or or communist or you know, that's more anarchist? Uh, is there an example of that A and B? Um, if say a universal basic income was put into place uh, with um, universal health insurance. Um, would that suffice? Yeah, so so immediately, like cooperatives have been along for they've been on for a long time. A lot of like cooperatives um, have actually a lot of power. Um, one example that I could give is the cooperatives of, of Mondragon in Spain. It's an entire region of Spain where the entire city is run by cooperatives, like a bank cooperative, a university cooperative a transportation cooperative and the entire social relationship of the in city is 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 managed by the people themselves so that's a very modern example that i want to point out to mm-hmm. but, but that's still capitalism that's the, exact they're still like selling these products that they build to a capitalist market like they have a industrial right. they have they they manufacture let's say cars or like washing machines they're a cooperative, but they're still selling that to the international market. But the people themselves earn so much more than a worker here in the States or in China, for example. So we, I do recognize that the entire world is capitalist right now. And, and we don't mm. have these experiments in like a closed loop at, at the scale that kind of like capitalists want for. But I do know of, of hundreds of example of like small scale cooperatives in okay. Nicaragua, for example, where women run their entire production line and they all benefit directly right. from the entire process. Let me reframe the question a little bit. So if, if anarchy is really anti-government structure, hierarchy, government structure, anti-state, anti-state, capitalism is not a governmental structure. It's an, it's an economic structure. So, can anarchy and capitalism be compatible? Absolutely not, because we because the, the social relationships created by capitalism are based on our analysis on hierarchy, competition, exploitation of land, exploitation of people. Because in order to generate the amount of wealth that capitalist mentalities want to, you need to exploit workers, and that goes back to the entire kind of like Marxist analysis. But also, but, yeah. we claim that. Mm neoliberalism was this idea that that the economic and the state should be separate things like the state should be reduced to its minimum and that you just need to let the free market kind of take control and 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 fill in the blanks but what we notice now is that precisely capitalism precisely needs more state in order for capitalism to grow because the state provides subsidies and bailouts and infrastructure for a capitalist economy to proliferate so we see capitalism and a state government as being um, fundamentally intertwined right so our analysis against the state is also included in our analysis against capitalism i see Okay, so you you're basically putting capitalism and communism and all. It's it's such a hard combination because yeah. commun it's like what's economic and what's because because anarchists also have historical differences with communism. Like we don't right. we don't think that the state is the means towards the end 
of collective liberation. We see the state as perpetuating cer- certain social relationships that are based on hierarchy and and domination. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so just uh, a couple more things I want to talk about on this text directly related to I think this conversation is there was a, a point in in um, uh, in the narrative where uh, the author, the anonymous author, um, kept kind of referring to the concentrated power of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I alluded to this before, but you could also say that, um, yes, while concentrated power is not good, collective power can be good. And the way to, to um, you know, to kind of, cooperate on a grand scale to achieve kind of great things to i mean to put a man on the moon just as a example as more of a metaphor than anything else like you do need certain um incentives at the individual level um to kind to, to you know to build bridges to build ships to create inventions to to discover you know the the uh, the atom and uh the big bang um and kind of uh, you know, you, we can we can do this podcast, right? Um, we can travel to Nicaragua for a wedding for a weekend. Um, so there are disadvantages, but there's also advantages. There's the potential for collective power, just as there's the potential for concentrated power. So the question with with capitalism is: Do we throw you know the baby out with the bathwater? And what we lose, what we, or what we gain from taking the the power out of concentrated what we what we gain from losing uh, in in the baby in the bath the the, the baby is collective power the bathwater is concentrated power so if we take out the corruption do we also lose you know all the great things that are on the internet you know yeah so, and 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 that's a very common kind of kind of argument i've heard it a lot specifically in the 90s when neoliberalism was being sold to other countries the main theorist milton friedman i think said like look this pencil is created thank you to the collaboration the worldwide collaboration of like one country produced the wood another country produced the paint another country produced the eraser another country produced the metal for the pencil and then we all collaborated together to produce this amazing thing a pencil right but then what us anarchists say is that that's not really collaboration because the social relationships that of the people working in those factories they're not they're not voluntarily collaborating with the space they're working there because if they don't work they they will die of hunger because there's no other option they don't have they can't pick what jobs they want to do they take the jobs that are available which can be extremely exploitative and alienating so it's not really collaborating together it's basically be people are coerced into work because if they don't work they will starve to death or not have a house that's where universal basic income or like free um universal health care stuff really do benefit a lot of people because then that gives them more power to make honest decisions that benefit themselves in their life yeah and 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 anarchists are for building enormous things. We are for um, the collective creation of of technology and going to the moon. And I mean, there's an entire kind of 
of strand of commu- of uh, anarchism called like full full luxury um anarcho space communism this is basically this idea that if people controlled the means of production if people really were able to work out of joy in the things that they loved that humanity would create such an impressive beautiful technologies and things because they're doing it out of love not because they need to pay rent not because they need to um, take care of their their sick wife not because they are so into college that mm-hmm. and um this is different from libertarianism yeah libertarianism is 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 uh in favor of a small state but also supportive of capitalism so it without capitalism is like does money still exist so yeah i mean we can speculate on it's a lot of anarchists don't like kind of there's this utopian anarchist that's like creative speculation of what society could be in the future but also we want a society does things like beyond money in terms of like exchanging services directly one another. We, there's some experiences, um, experiments in like time banks, basically you, you exchange your services through the amount of time that you like, for example, I'll teach you an hour of Spanish. If you paint my house for an hour, sure. for example, like that kind of more direct, um, participatory economies. But when you bring in money, it's then tied to an international market that's based on speculation that as we see with coronavirus is actually very susceptible to to global kind of powers and to global mentalities and we see that as unsustainable so we're trying to create more economies that are participatory and face-to-face and less alienating and a way that are actually like more democratic Hmm. Okay, um, I'm gonna leave it at that because I want to <laughs> tie it more to climate change. But yeah, I definitely, yeah. I definitely have more questions, and I, th- I think that one of one of the thoughts I had reading this was was um, if the question between reverting to a band of hunter gatherers yeah. versus being an advanced um, technical society is kind of like we've traded the work. Let's say the work we do now, this advanced society is, yeah, we have to, we're, we have to work. We have to work eight hours a day. We're yeah. in Excel spreadsheets maybe for eight hours a day, right? You know, whippy. Um, but we do that so that we don't have to walk 30 miles a day. Yeah. And walk, do, or do eight hours of walking or as a nomadic uh, band. Uh, um, and so we don't have to, you know, risk our lives trying to hunt down a, a buffalo or whatever. So we've traded one kind of work for the other, and then that's a conversation you can have. Like, you know, is that is that progress? Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of anarcho primitivists will argue that in hunter gatherer societies and even in medieval times, people had more leisure time than they do today. I don't necessarily yeah. know what what um, research they're pointing to, but they're basically pointing to the fact that we live. We used to live in a world where we didn't have to work. 50 hours a week to survive even if people (laughs) were dying of like preventable diseases and stuff there's a certain kind of sacredness to being part of the land and to sustain it and to like sustainable 
agriculture and stuff that reconnects us with nature. And it does have a an interesting view of nature, an interesting view of our position in life, an interesting view with like development, which I don't I bought in at a time. It made a lot of sense, but now I see that we need to push through with technology and and use it to benefit all of humanity, not just uh, economic technocrats or elites. Yeah. And then the other question that it begs, the other um, example of how the, these two um, opposites are different, aside from the eight hours of walking versus the eight hours of Excel, yeah. is um, there's a, he wrote how, you know, there's a, hundred, a, hundred, a billion people who are starving like every day. Yeah. And, you know, um, a dozen generations ago, there weren't a hundred billion or a, one billion people alive at all. So on one hand, we've had progress and we've had the quality of life has risen for a lot of people, but there's also more people today that are, have, that are starving day yeah. in and day out than you know, used to be alive in total, you know, you know, just 200 years ago. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of thinkers, like, I don't know if you read Steven Pinker. Yeah. He's really, he's, he's famous for claiming Lightning that, now. Yeah. that we live the, we're living the best possible like things are a lot better right now than they used to be 50 years ago. Right. And he's kind of like pro science saying like science and the scientific method has created a world that is abundant and safer and, and with less illness and stuff. But like anarchists point out, but like we still live, we still have mass poverty. Like right. our greatest successes as a civilization need to be compared with our most horrible kind of crimes right absolute apps in absolute numbers we have the most prosperity we've ever had we also have the most poverty we've ever had exactly and the 20th century was the the most violent century we've ever had it's, you know just we have so many more people alive there's so much more pleasure and so much more suffering as well yeah the stakes are a lot higher right now than ever before and i don't really buy in into like things are better because as you said like we have we have to confront the fact that that mass poverty exists. And as coming from Nicaragua, that's something that I constantly think about because Nicaragua is the third poorest country of the Americas after Haiti and Honduras. So all this talk of like how beautiful the world is, how, how Tesla is doing so much work, how there's all this stuff, like I don't see it in the global south because mm. my perspective is not Europe. I mean... I know Norway's right. doing great. Sweden's doing great. Like Nordic countries have figured people, Germany's working 30 hours a week. I mean, that's beautiful. But at the same time, I see indigenous communities getting killed because farmers want their land to grow their own monocrops, palm oil, or to expand their cattle. Mm -hmm. So that's my standard for, for things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the global South, this is the, the last, this is the last thing I promise I want to talk about about this book. Oh, you did. Um, but to tie it to climate change once and for all, we talked a little bit about new opportunities for capitalism to 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 grow, and part of that was exploring the Arctic. Um, and we we mentioned Russia, Canada, the U.S. Um, setting up different military posts in the Arctic, uh, and in Antarctica, even they, they had a day uh, last month, sixty-five degrees. It was the hottest day ever recorded in Antarctica. Sixty-five degrees. That's warmer. It's than not a lot sixty-five of other degrees place. today here in Philadelphia <laughs> in March. Um, it's 
incredible. Um, but what struck me reading this was they talked about the expansion of the desert in the global south in yeah. that how the the equatorial line is just going to widen as as desert and that's kind of what the book it's called it's called yeah. desert this is what society will look like in a desert but also we have to desert the idea of yeah. of uh of the state um but my question was we know that Russia, Vladimir Putin, he to him, climate change is a hoax, right? To Trump, climate change is a hoax. Yet Trump did want to buy Greenland, <laughs> right, to explore the Arctic. So my my question is that, you know, you and I, obviously you, you're from the global south or technically north of the equator, um, but we care about the global south, right? We care about climate change. We care about human suffering. That's why we're having this podcast and this discussion now. Um, but maybe the reason that Trump and Putin, they call climate change a hoax yet. They explore the Arctic is they see it as an opportunity for themselves. And they don't really give a fuck about the global South. They don't care that, you know, millions, billions of people could die. Um, and I, th- I think that thought is, it's terrifying, but it's like, I, I do think it's very, very interesting. You know, for some, we kind of take it as a given that as a person, you should care about the loss of life in countries that are halfway around the world. Um, but just because we feel that way, that doesn't mean that everyone feels that way, you know? Um, and part of this denial, to this, this not wanting to kind of care about climate change, could just be connected with someone feeling like, why should I care about what happens to the people in Bangladesh? You know, what happens to the people in Nicaragua? You know, I'm I'm in living in Nova Scotia. I'm living in uh, nothing against Nova Scotia. I love that place. You know, but I'm <laughs> I'm living. I'm fine. Climate change will be beneficial to me, or I'm not going to get the worst out of it. I'll survive. Why should I care about the billions and billions of people in the global south you know we take it as a given but is that really a given yeah so so a couple things like first you mentioned the title of of the text desert and it's it has so many so many layers to it like desert not just as the process of desertification but also as a metaphor as like a, a void a a a emptiness a a radical toxicity of, of, of nothing. And an and ecologist would say, like, actually, deserts are very diverse ecologically. Like, they have very complex systems of, of life. And the book, the text points to, like, communities that thrive in deserts through a particular kind of social relationship. So desert as, as the upcoming doom of the world, but also as a position for opportunity is what why I take away from, from the text. But then the other part that you say about the relationship with the global north and the global south is that for every Europe, you need one Africa. For every U.S., you need one Latin America in terms of the economic relationships and resource relationships between the two, these, the north and the south. And I want to invoke um, Shishik because he claims that people in the global north do not have a uh, a lived phenomenological experience of climate change and he uses the example of toilets that you you shit and and the toilet you just flush and it disappears 
experientially from your mind. Like you right. don't have to deal with where that shit ends up with. So right. the global yeah. north has the privilege of not dealing with the shit, but the global south with desertification, with with drug wars, with the Amazon being on fire, with paramilitary groups protecting natural resources, we don't get the privilege of not experiencing climate change um, and its violent violent effects directly because we see it in in our rivers in 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 tourism in our lakes specifically from nicaragua like we don't get to claim that it's that it's a hoax but i'm sure that the elites in the global north that will never come face to face with the shit Uh like they they can they can claim and 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 live inside of their bubble that's what to me like this coronavirus is such a kind of fascinating case study and microcosm is it really shows you can live in a bubble but really you can't like they're saying even even the president might have come in contact with somebody yeah and, and people are canceling their flights i i have a trip uh, next week that you know my office told me today that you know, if if you go on this trip to florida I was going to go to New Orleans party. this weekend and my mom's conference got canceled and now I might still go just because I have my tickets already or I might just stay here. I don't know. I, I was told that if I went, I couldn't go back into work for 14 days because everyone in my office is You can't they're afford older. not to work for 14 days. Exactly. So I can't go to this trip. That's what it comes down to. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, but it's, it's such a, it's such a fascinating kind of um, forward to climate change and this story how you know we think that what what's going to happen with climate change sea level rise the equator is going to desertify you know the arctic is going to expand so we imagine this future but really no one saw the coronavirus coming and things like that are that's what's going to take people it's it's not just these kind of like gradual these slow burning type of um global shifts it's it's going to be the the storms like the mm-hmm. violent um, shocks. It's going to be the hurricanes. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, it's, it's going to be the, um, more infections that come out of the permafrost melting. Yeah. Um, it's going to be extremely hot days, um, heat waves, drought, um, these, these very like wildfires. Yeah. Right. Like, like we just saw, it's going to be that like things that you can't predict. But also what this text says is that Climate change will have this environmental consequence, but the political consequence of climate change is that you're going to see militarization, closed borders, more justifying authoritarian governments. And that's why the coronavirus is crazy. Like we're seeing that now. Yeah. There was, um, so I talked to my friend who's in China. He's living in China. I talked to him on Sunday. His city, Shenzhen, which is, pretty far away from Wuhan mm-hmm. was locked down for a month. Yeah. He didn't go to, he didn't go to work. No one was allowed to leave their apartment. He left only to buy groceries. Only the grocery stores were open. A few restaurants were open. They delivered only. He had uh, government <laughs> officials would knock on his door to take his temperature and upload his, make sure he was uploading his data to the government app. Yeah. Um, only now a month later, he started going to work because after the month lockdown, um, you know, the symptoms uh, would get out yeah. of your body after two weeks. And that's the only reason it's not way worse. Like, we read that it's up to, you know, 100,000 cases about in China. 
um, and we think, oh, they got it bad. It could have been so much yeah. worse. And the reason that it's not so much worse is because they had these, they took these unprecedented uh, drac- draconian measures. Yeah. yeah. This, this huge state controlled system, you know? So, and that also like begs the question, like in this case, like the state may have been effective at limiting this outbreak. Yeah. No, and that's how the government, the states will justify, they will they will use the crisis to justify more laws, more regulations, more lack of our liberties. Right. And that's what we saw in Nicaragua with the up, popular uprising. It's like, oh, now we can like militarize our police because this is a state of emergency. The state has absolute power. And I think what we learned about... Let me turn that. Yeah, you're good. Keep, keep going. The thing that we learned about... Um, here in the states is like number one that the white house is completely ill-prepared to it's just incompetent at addressing this which is so surprising because trump's whole talk is you know he's against against china america first like let's get the disease out you know they're like infesting our country he talks about uh, like immigrants and language as if they're infectious diseases and now that the disease there's a disease here from china his like big rival he's like denying its existence It's 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 Gone, humiliating yeah. and it's a national security threat. Like I don't want to claim. Yeah. So here's here's my last point with this text is that sure. we see crisis as an opportunity, but also as a challenge. Like crisis, either environmental crisis in this case, the government will use will justify lack of liberties to protect its own people, like increase border security, like curfews and stuff like that but at the same time us anarchists see it as an opportunity to develop social bonds and social infrastructure between people that are outside of the scope of the government and the state like Mm. mutual aid like helping each other out like giving sharing rides sharing food taking care of each other it's an opportunity to build something on top of the state like what we see in like new orleans after hurricane katrina like the state was again incompetent, mm. but it was the people themselves that organized themselves in such a fashion that allowed them to survive and to protect themselves. Oases of anarchy in a desert of state. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the only thing that we got. <laughs> that's but a like... borrowed line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I but that's what I also got from this is that. What he's not he's not saying just as there's going to be no global collapse, quote unquote. There's no global revolution. Exactly. There's an anarchy is not going to replace the state, but you can find little pockets like a co-op here, co-op there. Yeah. Of you know, ideally more ambitious than just a co-op. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But you find and just those little pockets of anarchy yeah. is like, like reason enough to celebrate, and that's that's yeah. the goal. It's not total. It's not total revolution, but it's just like you know keep. Keep a few stars alight in the sky. Yeah. Like for a, a couple examples here in the U.S., like Detroit has, is building their own kind of like internet network that's autonomous from any private company. Like in the 70s, all over the West Coast, they were like cri- like um, gender violence and rape crisis centers that were out of people's houses. They There were these infrastructure of thousands of homes that people opened up t- to women t- that were faced with gender violence that the state wasn't providing so student did it um themselves like you see all over the board when crisis happens like in puerto rico there was no no energy for 
of up to a couple months there was no potable water and the people organized themselves in in communal assemblies and ran their city when the state felt to do so so that's the double thing of like a crisis it's an opportunity but also it's it's a threat okay well let's go on to topic number two of our agenda (laughs) So we we got a lot to cover, um, uh, but I think we bled into to some of our uh, future topics. But one of the things, the main thing that I wanted to bring you on to talk about was comparing the the Green New Deal, which is a a far reaching uh, social reform that incorporates um, climate change uh, strategies as well as strategies to address other social measures such as affordable housing, health care, um, social racial, racial justice, uh, all that good stuff. Comparing that list of aspirations that's not all specifically climate change related with something like a comprehensive climate change strategy, sort of like the one uh, de- dealing with a multivariate solutions. I sent you um, a uh, an article, Project Drawdown, which identified a hundred um, climate change technical solutions. The article summarized about 10 of them, but it had things on there like, um, you know, just the thing, some, some things you would expect like planting um, windmills on shore, uh, rooftop solar, and some other things that you wouldn't expect um, as much as, which is may- maybe like, um, you know, regulating like refrigerants and yeah, air conditioning. That was, that was number one. Yeah. And, and also e- even like uh, um, educating girls. They said educating girls and family planning is like number one to limit the population, essentially. Um, silvopasture, uh, which was an interesting term I'd never heard of just being a being a New York, New Jersey, Northeast <laughs> Seaboard guy like that. But like this, this concept of um, of. Uh, integrating forestry with cattle ranching was like really interesting to me. And I went down a little deep dive of that. And I was going to send you like all these links for solo pasture. And then I was just like, I'll just send you the, the top 10 list. But to compare the green new deal, which is something that says we want to have climate change and healthcare and affordable housing versus a, a kind of climate policy that says we need to do something for windmills and for solar panels and for refrigerants. So how do you kind of look at those two sort of strategies? So I I I support the Green New Deal because its its analysis is more intersectional. It doesn't see as technology as being isolated from gender relationships or from race relationships or from geography. It it sees class and labor and gender and geography as intricate parts of of how to tackle um, climate change. And I think it's a lot more. Um, integrative and, and like a more holistic approach to how to deal with this how, because we cannot isolate jobs from gentrification from from transportation from the divisions between the east coast and the west coast and geography like that so that's that's the biggest benefit of the green new deal is that it's actually radical because his approaches like roots root issues i mean is anarchists would say it's like it's not radical enough because it's still giving more power to the state instead of giving more power to communities. Uh, and then Project um, Drawdown, that, that's that's his name, right? Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's very technocratic. It's like technology. We don't need to change our social relationships. We just need to adopt 
these technological policies and these like business ideas and that's going to push through with capitalism but there's no comprehensive analysis of of increasing increasing like workers wages or like creating more cop like more cooperatives or like giving more power to unions or to talk about environmental racism for example or sure. it still assumes like sure cattle as being and and to, yeah. to clarify the project drawdown it's not a, a policy proposal or a, a resolution or anything like that it's kind of more of a list of solutions that something like the green door might might want to incorporate right it has some things yeah. like energy efficiency which i they already the green the first bill to come out of the green new deal is this public housing bill for um, making all public housing units kind of energy efficient. So it has sol- solutions. It's like a little toolbox yeah. that, that different policies can use. Um, one, one thought that I had um, that I, I talked to you about a couple weeks ago about this was it was an idea I had when I had uh, Gabe Gordon on this, on this podcast a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, and I think next time he's in town, I'll, 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 uh, I'll have you guys meet. I think you'd, you'd get along on some of these issues. Um, not an anarchist, but a good guy. <laughs> uh, and you can listen to his show, episode 15, I believe. But anyway, um, so we were talking about this public housing deal and the Green New Deal, and, and uh, he, he's, a, he's a supporter in many ways, thoughtful, thoughtful dude. But what the Green New Deal does is it's not just that it incorporates policies that aren't directly related to climate change, say affordable housing, health care, et cetera. What it does is it builds support for a resolution that is climate that is the most ambitious we have on climate change built from it builds that support among people who wouldn't other otherwise be interested in climate change so they say all the time how do you get uh, the average person who's struggling just to put food on the table to care about climate change which is something that could happen 30 years out something that they don't have much control over in their daily lives when they have bigger issues when they need you know they can't af- afford uh, their insulin shot for example um, can't afford daycare in the green new deal it get it builds that support so it popularizes climate change and i think you're already seeing in this election um, that all the major candidates for the democratic party have really you know they've they have strong climate proposals at this point and and uh, the polling from the Iowa caucus is after healthcare climate was the number two issue, which is oh, a, wow. which is a huge, huge change from where it was. People care about climate change now. And I think that that's because um, it has been, it has been linked and it has been um, promoted by people like um, AOC uh, and, and in integrated into all these things like affordable housing. So I think that is valuable from a practicality standpoint. That's the other question. That's kind of the trade-off. We already see how difficult it is to pass things like universal health care, which we've been trying to do since the 50s. So one of the worries is if you can't pass universal health care, will that mean you won't be able to pass like, climate change legislation? You know, like, And there, there are Democrats also on the stage who don't believe in universal health care because of the cost and different things that are in the Green New Deal. So what's the severability? What, to what degree can you agree with the climate change parts of the Green New Deal, but not some of the other aspects? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a very ambitious project, and it's, and it's ahead of their time because it's also they have to challenge 
this 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 nationalistic culture in our and the US relationship with like with oil and like carbon and like all of this and and mining. So it's a challenge to try to get everything done at once because it only works if you have the infrastructure that's going to support all the people that are going to lose their jobs from like the the oil and like fossil fuels so you need a good like transportation to these new new green jobs mm-hmm. and and it's ambitions because it's kind of like all or nothing but with such a polarized kind of like state and with so much funding from fossil fuels and in lobbying and in the white house and in and in the senate it's 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 really hard and i don't know how i don't know what's going to happen i think we again we're being humiliated by other countries around the world that have already adopted really climate forward policies um just the fact that we don't have like a, a rapid like train system it's like ridiculous it's insane in it's like and it's that, absurd and, and that we used Pennsylvania used to be way connected by regional rail and yeah. it no longer is like you have all these rail lines, even the Philadelphia region, not just the rest of the state, but even in the region, there's a whole rails to trails program in the mm. region where they're con- converting old, old rail lines to, to just nature trails. Yeah. And there's this huge, um, I know I, I used to work at the regional planning commission and there was, um, there was pushback at one of the, um, like st- stakeholder meetings, one neighborhood group was complaining and they were saying that they were very anti, you know, creating these trails. Mm. Like who's against trails, you know? And their whole take was they want the rail line back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny. I mean, it, it's just very ironic, but it, it, that like, and there's no thought in like the long range transportation planning about expanding rail. Yeah. There's just no thought. It's just the fact that it, it's so financially infeasible is is just amazing um, in this country. There's uh, SEPTA is doing one possibly to King of Prussia that's been in the works for, I feel like, over a decade, forever. But just, just that little extension it takes so much work. Um, whereas in Shenzhen, in yeah. China, where they just had this month-long lockdown, I was fortunate to go about a year ago. I went to Shenzhen city of 10 million people they opened like 80 percent of their subway system in a month one once they had like two lines running and then they decided to just expand it and they were just they they were just going to open it all on one day like in within a in one month they're just going to open it all and they went from two lines to like 10 in a month um you can check the math but it's something like that um but they just they just build and build and build and in and then in their in in their imagination that's like common sense that's like of course we're going to build affordable public rapid transportation but here we're so backwards in how in what we think is possible and not possible right. and i hear i agree with both bernie and and, and Chishik again it's like the real the real utopia is to imagine that things could keep on going as they are like we really need to drastically reimagine what's possible and what's not possible and what's what can actually be built and kind of have more ambition and start thinking of these things mm-hmm. as as completely crazy or or that we're not able to pay for this stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, let, let's let's go do a little segment where we count. Let's count down that just the top top ten climate change solutions okay. um, from this article that we talked about, and I, I want to hear your just 
30 second just reaction to um you know how much you're into them how realistic you think it's going to happen yeah um all right number 10 rooftop solar like it love it i like it i think i think i mean tesla's doing that i've seen a bunch of videos of like people getting paid by the government because they're producing more energy into the grid which is cool but I, it's still too individualized into like a house and it should be like community sol- solar where the community gets together, invests in a solar farm, and then they all benefit equally instead of competition between households. Yeah. I love rooftop solar. Yeah. Because... The, and it's going to become more affordable. Yeah. And the, the thing is, if everyone had a solar panel on the rooftop, everyone could have energy. You know, yeah. if you double that with electric cars, use your car as a battery to store it overnight while it's parked in the garage. Or sorry, well, you have to store it during the day, whatever. But <laughs> if you couple rooftop store with battery battery storage, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, that seems yeah. like it would a very intuitively a hardcore anarchist would say that what is needed to produce these solar panels, and if it's if if still extractive and really. And, like, they're done in, like, horrible working conditions. Like, we still need responsibility to, like, the process of creating the panels. Yeah. Well, they say that one of the um, challenges is that it's the batteries. Um, yeah. It's all from made from cobalt, which is really, um, which is found in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's, <laughs> it's like, blood diamond for yeah. cobalt. Um, number nine, silvopasture. Silvopasture is combining uh forestry with with cattle ranching yeah i i don't i I don't like this i mean we need to (laughs) we need to think beyond i mean i'm not a vegan i used to be a vegan but beyond meat um there's a stat that says like 70 percent of indigenous land um in the u.s has gone to like cattle that's true so it seems like the unintended consequences could be massive like just justification for more deforestation Exactly. Instead of actually creating yeah. biodiversity and, and protecting more kind of environmental, expanding national parks and actually attacking invasive species mm-hmm. and, and creating more um, diverse yeah. ecology. If you were, let's say you were the, the president, the, you were, let's say you're the rightful president of Nicaragua, right? <laughs> and you were at the UN sub- I summit. Think about, I think about that a lot, actually. <laughs> and, and I was the rightful president of, I don't know, I guess the U.S., because... Um, but, uh, let's say I came to you with an, a, a resolution. I said that, um, our resolution is that we will do zero business with Brazil. Um, if, 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 unless deforestation stops today, um, would you sign it? Would you go that hardcore? No, I, we, yeah. So, so yeah. So that was like a no bearing to you. It's like, why is this not a resolution? Why does this not exist? Where because are the countries signing up for this? The the cattle lobbying, the meat lobbying, it's like all of this they have invested. It's, it's I mean, honestly I'll, well, money. I'll, I'll eat meat, but just not in the fucking Amazon. Yeah. Like Amazon, like when we talk about the earth is alive, the Amazon is the fucking, it's the heart. Yeah. No, and, and I, I don't separate like the environment and like indigenous communities there. I mean, it's not just deforestation, but it's like paramilitarization of the zone. Like literal people with guns shooting other people that have been living there for hundreds of generations just just to you know graze some cows yeah 
It's insane. Like this, there should be. A, we should stop the fossil fuel subsidies today, and we should stop deforesting the Amazon. Can't we just do that? <laughs> if we just get those two things no. right, we would be so much better off. No, and and have you heard like Bolsonaro's like anti-indigenous like ultra fundamentalist speeches about like like uh, indigenous communities never were never entitled to the land, and they're like backwards and dumb, and we oh. just need to give more land to like big business and that's going to save the economy it's sick you know and it's also we say like there's such climate pessimism out there but i mean if we just stop if we stop funding fossil fuels and we just stop cutting down the damn rainforest that would make such a huge difference i mean (laughs) like come on those two things it's it's and like we we, that, that that could happen that could happen overnight yeah you just tell Bolsonaro, you'd be like, next person that cuts down, you know, trees in the Amazon, they, you know, they, uh, it's illegal. It's just now illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Find find any other job to do. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah, we agree silvopasture can have unintended consequences. Um in, and we don't. We both don't know much about no. it. Like, <laughs> to, I'm totally open-minded to be convinced. When I read about it, I, I have to be honest. Like I thought, this sounds amazing. There's a lot of potential here, because there is potential on existing farmland. If you could plant because tre- because yeah, we need yeah. to plant trees to suck suck up carbon. If you plant trees on existing farmland, because there's a ton. That's yeah. huge. So like it has a lot of potential. It has unintended consequences. Um, but it could be a great thing. So I don't want to hate on civil pasture. It could be. I mean, it has fina- phenomenal applications. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number eight. <laughs> solar farms. Solar farms ahead of rooftop solar. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm down. I'm down with it as long as it's like ethically produced and like community owned. And You know what a solar farm is? Though? A fucking forest. It's just forests? <laughs> yeah, isn't that you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, trees have been doing these. <laughs> yeah, that's why I <laughs> like... just inventing the tree. Yeah, that's why even though solar farms can probably produce more like ener- we teach- energy per yeah. capita, like, the point is land use-wise, rooftop solar, like, if you're going to have development, if you have a roof, it makes sense to put a solar panel on it. Yeah. But if you have, like, a big pe- forest, it doesn't make sense to cut it down to put up solar panels. And... But in I a mean, desert, yeah. I could see it. Like, like, very ambitious thinking is, like... I I, you you need to see a map of like the hottest parts of the U.S. and like the yeah. most concentrations of solar panels, and they don't align. Like the biggest, like a building, like solar plants in like the desert, it's not really happening as much as it should be. Yeah. And we haven't explored the possibility of like, what if we have all the solar panels in one state, and then the rest of the country like benefits from that, or like some hypo- like speculative technocrats are like if we just put panels in like the sahara like all of europe could have right like energy what about all of africa having energy yeah (laughs) no it's the the european technocrats aren't thinking about africa (laughs) they they just want to power europe there's something uh my energy class we read a book called power density by vaclav smil and he talked about like the land use implications of of having an energy overhaul and he said that for the u.s to transition to an optimal a combination of solar and wind and biofuels, et cetera, et cetera, even taking advances in efficiency into account. 
it would take up about 17% of the U.S. land mass. Just, oh, really? Just to have all that. And right right now, like, it's at, you know, what, less than 1% because it's just it's oil extraction. But England, because you mentioned Europe, England would take up an area the size of England itself. Really? Yeah. But that's uh, that's assuming the, the and, that's uh, assuming like the 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 energy input right now is it's still like under this capitalist logic of like we need to power malls. We need to power like call centers. We need right. to power all well, of these like private well, but it, businesses. It, it accounts for efficiency. If we but what if we like closed down like what if we like destroyed all the stuff that we don't need? Well, then and people we, would die. Like just like infrastructure or like people wouldn't get water I mean, and food. I wouldn't want to create. I mean, I I would rather I would rather have like solar energy, like massive transportation, than solar energy cars. Is my like I I want to invest in more like communal ways of using yeah. of alternative energy than these individualistic ways of of just justifying. Like it's it's the same thing with like Obama and like the biofuel jet. Like I don't care that a tank has a solar panel on top of it. I don't care that a fighter jet has solar panels. I don't care that a a mm. boat that's shooting at mm. other countries has is energy efficient. Like I want the logic of what we're investing our energy on yeah. to be completely rethought. No doubt, no doubt. Um, it's solar incredible potential. I was would say. I went to Bolivia a couple of years ago and went to the salt desert. Yeah, yeah. And after traveling, we got to like a little hostel in the middle of nowhere. Solar powered. It was beautiful. It was yeah. just like this little like hostel, like very very dingy. But I mean, um, on, on Bolivia in the '90s, with the neoliberal kind of uh, attempts, the the one of the biggest protests was for for water because the water company privatized mm. rainwater. Oh yeah. The the water company in Bolivia forbid communities to collect their own rainwater because it was affecting oh. their prices. So they had a they they shut down the entire cities and said like we want national we water's a human right. We shouldn't no, have to is, pay for it. This is the it's the driest place I've ever seen. I went to yeah. La Paz and you ride the the teleferico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the cable cars and you the city it's it's brown. It's it's like post Lorax. It's totally Yeah. It's like heartbreaking. It's one of the driest places. There's like little brown creeks that run through. It's yeah. I mean, I mean it's tough. And there's a whole the lake in the middle of the country, not Titicaca, but uh, Poopo. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know on the Google Maps you see a big blue lake, totally dry. Oh Nothing really? There. I think they're just you know diverting it. <laughs> like yeah. The Aral Sea. Um, I guess my point is like I hope we don't get to the point where private or state companies privatize solar energy like. Say like you're not allowed right. to use solo, solo because that affects our our fossil fuel industry. Right, and that that's more of an argument for rooftop solar. No, not rooftop, even rooftop solar is more of the anarchist democratic yeah. uh, kind of way. Whereas solar farms, let's say you have a big like uh, mirrors that are um, directing into each other to create oh, and, one heat spot. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, which is amazing technology. I think Bill Gates is investing in it. But yeah, that has the potential to. Yeah. That's like that's one of the examples of how capitalism can take advantage of climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. If things get hotter if you have technologies that benefit from that. But like, I, I think it's not hard to imagine if like a company has already legally privatized rainwater. I think it's also possible for companies to prohibit people from having rooftop solar panels. Mm, I see. Uh, you see. 
just to keep the demand up just to keep <laughs> our necessity with like fossil fuels and stuff yeah. like I, I i missed that but i i caught that on that, that the second time around there you said the bolivian government was privatizing rainwater rainwater so so was it illegal to collect your it own? was illegal to collect water they would send police to your house and beat you up if you were collecting rainwater in the Why? 90s because they controlled the water business a private company instead of the state was investing in water infrastructure and saw that people indigenous communities were collecting their own water and didn't need such they they didn't need to pay for this service so they just like privatized and they actually they were communities that were building their own kind of water resource networks but those were also illegal because they they wouldn't pay the private company from providing that service shocking i wonder if this has to do with that lake being dried up in some way i mean yeah that's pretty pretty interesting um anyway that's solar (laughs) (laughs) that's solar uh plenty more to talk about but um six and seven kind of go together so seven is family planning and six is educating girls i mean i would i would i don't buy into this like overpopulation argument because when you see the data the the one percent is producing by far more carbon emissions than the bottom like 60 percent like i would never blame poor people for climate change because as i said earlier like for every europe there's an africa for every u.s there's a latin america these eurocentric cities are so um, energy intensive that they immediately outweigh the the collective energy used by the global south so i think that we do have enough resources they're just not distributed um properly and i would not i i don't i just don't buy into this idea that there's too many mouths to feed. Like there's plenty of food. Like you know how much food is wasted. It's just right. there's an infrastructure that benefits but the, the few I and think, not the majority. I think the argument is that the food production industry, yeah, it takes a lot of carbon emissions, and uh, you, it's you would then the the demand created to produce that much more food creates that much more. Um, Land use and yeah. land use and and uh, you need uh, what the green revolution, the industrial agriculture, yeah. different kinds of practices. Yeah, I want to know how much food is wasted though. Like, I want to know oh, a ton of how food much is like, wasted. Like France made it illegal to like waste food or like collects food that would go bad and then like redistrib- redistributes that. And I know this from like food not bombs. Like mm-hmm. the main philosophy of food not bombs is like there's plenty of food out there. It's just oh, not yeah. being distributed properly. And there's, mm. I don't know how many, what percentage of, of food is being wasted. And if we just had mm. better sustainable infrastructure to distribute all the food that could potentially be wasted, we can even live with like less food that's being produced. Mm-hmm. We've had a s- segments on this podcast where we read climate change fact and react. So I'll just, just because you mentioned it. Yeah. Um, and these are actually, this is about the U.S., but 40% mm. of all the food produced in the U.S. goes uneaten. That's okay. 40%. Yeah, that's so that's almost half. Americans throw away estimated twenty five percent of the food they bring home. Twenty pounds of food per person every month. Uh, a typical American throws out forty percent of fresh fish, twenty three percent of eggs, and twenty percent of milk. Twenty five percent of all fresh water used in the U.S. 
goes to creating food that we eventually waste. Forty? How much percent? Twenty-five percent of yeah. all fresh water used in the U.S. goes to producing food we waste. What percent of food scraps do you think are composted? Um, five percent. Three percent. Three percent. Damn. Fifteen percent of all fruit is wasted. Eighteen percent of all grains are wasted. The average American family of four ends up throwing away an average of sixteen hundred dollars worth of food every year. Yeah, so that's my point. Like, there's, I want us to have the opportunity instead of building more. Instead of having the mentality that like, we need to grow more food, it's like we need to better administrate the food that we already have and see how many people we can sustainably fe- feed with the present-day infrastructure instead of imagining, oh, we're, we, we're going to need more space for this. 33% of meat products, that's a third of all meat products, end up in a landfill. That's the largest percentage of any kind of food. That's wow. the U.S. Um, so not only is meat a huge land use, but we just throw it away. Yeah. Oh, this is interesting. Two thirds of household food waste is from um, not using it and just let it spoilage. One third from cooking too much. <laughs> <laughs> food portions, you know. And yet the big problem is hunger. And um, that's you. And that's the U.S. And I would say right. that the U.S. is the the largest. Right. The average yeah. American consumer wastes ten times as much food as someone in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Progress. <laughs> yeah, again, we the US, the global north has the privilege of like wasting food yeah. and in places like Nicaragua, you absolutely eat what you have. <laughs> yeah. And also we grow our own food in our backyards, but that's another conversation. All right, I think you're going to like number 5. 5 is tropical forest restoration. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But not not just restoring, but uh, like returning it to indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's self-explanatory there. A for adoption of a plant-rich diet. Yeah, I mean, I my house is 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 vegan, and um, there's a lot of options here. But also, the main food in Nicaragua is rice, beans, and tortillas. I mean, and that's a full protein right there. Yeah. And and like meat is like a, not a privilege, but a, a nice extra treat. And it is a very meat-centric culture, I agree. But, like, I would say the majority of people are unknowingly vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this so this list is from uh, Project Drawdown, uh, greenamerica.org. This is the, the article we're looking for that just kind of summarized this. Um, top three favorite vegetables right now. Me? Yeah. I, I freaking love zucchinis. I Zucchini, love- hot take. Zucchinis, I, I like roasted zucchinis. I just, Jeez, yeah, I, I like expecting them. expecting that one. like them a lot. Uh, vegetable, vegetable, Brussels sprouts. I just got, I oh, love yeah. Brussels sprouts easily. That's obvious, yeah. Um, Brussels so, sprouts, that's like the main course. That's not a side dish. That's no, I, yeah, just throw some hot sauce in there and like nicely bake <laughs> it. It's like meatballs, yeah. Um, and then I want to say, I want to say broccoli. I just love a good old like cheddar broccoli Solid. soup, you know? Yeah, it's like a little tree. It's like eating yeah, a tree. Yeah, it's, Question, know. you know what I've, I've never done with broccoli is I when I cut it up, this is probably super wasteful on my part, but I <laughs> oh, sort of just like cut off the, the tip, the top, just like the leaves. I, I don't really eat a you lot just of eat the stem. Trunk. I don't really eat the trunk. Oh, yeah. I mean. I don't eat. No, I know. I, I don't eat the stem. 
really i okay. eat i eat mostly like the leaves part i leave i leave like two inches of stem sometimes a little bit but it like depends. the, the I mean, trunk i don't eat so like there's like that the big trunk. fat trunk no i don't eat that are you supposed to eat it i don't know but maybe we should it's a lot of in all the in all the recipes i vegetable. follow they're like don't eat the trunk what's the relationship between zucchinis cucumbers and pickles pickles yeah pickles are just pickled cucumber right yeah so zucchinis cucumbers different in terms of of of, of taste absolutely <laughs> but like uh, can you pickle a, they're, a they're, zucchini they're a different food right okay but i think they're like pickles different and cucumber strands. are the same food just prepared differently oh yeah i i heard zucchini sorry yeah yeah same so thing. pickles and zucchini and cucumber are the same thing but zucchini is a totally different vegetable yeah so where does zucchini grow where does cucumbers grow it's the same way. I don't, I don't okay. know. Okay. All right. Are you sure that they're different foods? Like, you think they come from, like, different, like, the same plant? <laughs> I, I forget <laughs> it. Number three is reduced food waste. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think. And number one is a refrigerator? Oh, we're at number two. Oh, okay. Number two is uh, onshore wind turbines. I'm a big fan of wind turbines, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, with the optimistic, this is kind of this the middle scenario. The optimi- like if we max out all these technologies, wind turbines have the the um, uh, the potential for being the the most transformative. They oh, skyrocket really? to number one by a mile. Yeah. Um, I have a question about wind turbines. Turbines. Yes. Um, is it true that they're like pretty pretty harsh on like um birds i mean or is that just like a fossil fuel myth right there that I mean, not that it factors i just want to know if that's something that's i think fossil fuels are harsh on birds no absolutely like, yeah like putting smoke in the atmosphere that's, that's harsh. Pretty, on, yeah. you know windows are harsh on birds i think we've oh, been yeah. pretty harsh on birds yeah um damn it uh, but i think you can it just it i don't know feels like it's a weak argument it's like yeah yeah i just hear like like right wingers being like no like we're gonna run out of wind and also birds i don't know about that i think (laughs) birds it's easier to see a windmill than to see a wind transparent building and yeah i'm i'm i see it being a, a thing but i mean it's not hard on your conscience if i i don't see it being worse than Emitting smoke into the atmosphere. Yeah, or blowing up bird nests. Number one, refrigerant management. So refrigerators and the and air conditioners and the chemicals they release to to cool um, is the number one cause. And if we can reduce that, that could be that is the most potential for being a climate change solution. Yeah, and I would say that once we try more sustainable ways of like growing our own food and, and not wasting food and just growing what we need, there's going to be less of a need of these large refrigeration industries. Cause we can localize a lot more. And like, again, if we're still trying to ways to like continue under capitalism, like if we cut like meat production, like refrigeration also goes down with that. Mm-hmm. A thought experiment that I love to play out is, what if no one had refrigerators? Let's just say everything else was the same. But if no one had refrigerators, 
think about that. We would waste so much less food. Um, we would, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. The refrigerator was invented, and this is like a, a uh, it's a great example of, of like induced demand and kind of counterintuition taking hold. The refrigerator was produced to reduce food waste because it would preserve food. It would it would prevent it from spoiling. But what happened? Um, you induce, uh, you know, if you create the 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 possibility to store more, um, people will just buy more and even more food will will spoil. So the refrigerator, while created to reduce food waste, counterintuitively led leads to more food waste because you just buy more shit to stuff in your fridge and never eat. Yeah, in my house, we have one chore specifically designed to throwing away food that goes to waste in our fridge. <laughs> There's one person a week that their sole job is to go through the fridge and yeah. throw out all the stuff so that's wasted. What percentage of food do you think you waste. We said Americans waste about 40% of their food they don't eat. What percentage of your food do you think you waste uh, with frit refrigerators? And that if you eliminated the refrigerator from your mm-hmm. co-op, what percentage do you think you would waste? I think right now we are wasting about between 5 to 10% of our food. Well, that's pretty efficient. Yeah. I mean, we buy weekly what we need and yeah, hungry we eat there. a lot. So I think it's not that bad. But when we waste something, it feels really hard. It like we like blame each other a lot yeah. for for like zucchinis gone to waste or like stuff yeah. but we also know the things that we're not eating so it's good to have a tabs on okay. things that are being and wasted. being in a co-op and sharing vegetables like that yeah there's can... more accountability and more like responsibility yeah. and... and you share it's not like you're just yeah 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 so exactly you're gonna eat whatever's there. yeah and if i think i i just cooked tonight before before coming to the show and if we didn't have a fridge, we would. I imagine us having like a a bunch of canned. Just everything would be canned. And or what about just like buying for the day? You could buy fresh and just cook it that day. And yeah, and and if we change the the contempt the the our work, if we if we work twenty hours a week, we would have more time to do shopping sustainably more 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 on average. Like we we buy once a week because is the only time we have free between eight of us that even some weeks we don't even go shopping because we're all so busy not doing it. So I'm thinking if we change like some economic relationships, we have more time to invest in our own gardens and like grow our own stuff and having more relationship with like farmers outside of the Philadelphia area. And like, I would love if I had the time and the massive transportation was there, I would love taking a train to a farm 30 minutes away, buying stuff from the farm and then being back home in an hour. Hmm. It's just a, just a thought right there. You know, it's like, what if you, you know how some people, they don't, instead of having mailing addresses and just, I, this is a, this is less than a half baked idea. I literally just thought of it. You know, some people, instead of having mailing addresses, they have peel boxes. Mm-hmm. You go to the post office and they have a, there's like a little like, you know, copy essentially <laughs> like what if instead of ha- instead of households having refrigerators everyone just had like a little cubby of like just essentials you know just like little things that they needed that they could they could check in on um <laughs> i don't know i don't know like b- maybe if you had you know one every 
I don't know. It's just a thought experiment. No, yeah. But bear, I, but bear I, with me. But like, what if like the fridge was something that's communal, but you had a little like lock and key? No, I love that. And I think, you know who would do it? It would be libraries. I think every library apartments. should have a communal fridge oh. that's enormous. And then... Oh, yeah. Communal like, kitchen, too. We, yeah, communal kitchens, communal fridge. And that's and like, one of the problems that, that people who... Like, like homeless people or people that, uh, you know, that, that homeless people have to eat McDonald's, they can't eat healthy. Yeah. It's this vicious cycle because there's no place to cook. Yeah. But also, like like tying that to like libraries also like like tool libraries there's a tool library here in west philly if i don't have a chainsaw i can go if i'm a member of the library i can go rent out a chainsaw but with like imagine that but for like food production or or food food creation like if i if i need a shovel i don't i don't want to buy a new shovel i'm just going to use the shovel for a day go to a library and get that there and that would communalize the goods yeah Anyway, I, I think there's a lot more potential for reducing the amount of refrigeration we do than for reducing the amount of air conditioning we do, unfortunately. Yeah. Because with the world getting hotter, you can just see air conditions, air conditioning kind of skyrocket. Unless you can reinvent the air conditioner to run electrically instead of on these chemicals. Yeah. I mean, and what an invention that would be. Yeah. Even refrigerators. I don't know. I, like, are, are people working on this? Or are people just trying to like build driverless cars and like artificial intelligence? <laughs> Can we get some people trying to build like electrified refrigerators and air I conditioners? Think, I think chemically, it's it should be pretty easy to invent like ice that never melts. I mean, is it is it a <laughs> like a, a what what do you call it? A closed loop system? A yeah, no, ice that never melts. You need a freezer for that. Like, but chemically, we couldn't do it. I don't know, but but I have a very interesting relationship to to air conditioners. Like in Nicaragua, air conditioners are again like a privilege because they're so energy intensive and they just cost so much to install mm. and maintain. Well, this is a good case study. Then I wanted you to finish that thought, but at some point, also answer like what percentage of people in Nicaragua have air conditioners? Yeah, I would say that. I would say it's it's increased a lot. I think if you ask me in the nineties, I would say about like five to ten percent of people had air conditioners most like definitely just in in the cities or that's low that's yeah extremely low especially for in the cities but now i think now that number is probably up to like 30 percent. i'm just throwing Mm -hmm. numbers out there just from my experience so in the 90s no in the 2000s our family um invested in an air in a air conditioner and it was just installed in my in my parents room and for an entire year, we all slept in the same room because of how nice it was to have air conditioner. And it was yeah. just like me, my brother, my mom, and my dad in the same air conditioned room. And it was, it was, it was really, really nice because of how hot it is. But after that, I mean, my house doesn't. I can't afford an air conditioner. If I went, if I moved to Nicaragua right now, I do not have the money really? to pay for the private electrical company. To keep my electric my refrigerator running, how much? It's like it's like I would uh, say it's like thirty percent of my energy bill would be just the one refrigerator, the one air one conditioner, air conditioner. Yeah, you have a refrigerator. I have I have a, I have a refrigerator, one air conditioner. So like, do you use fans? Have yeah, everybody uses fans, fans or um, leave their windows open. 
but if you're in the countryside, it's it's nice and cool over there, and you have a nice breeze, so you don't need air conditioner. You might need a fan for the mosquitoes and stuff, but like. All right. So yeah. so politically, I would say you're you're at the more extreme end of maybe the the spectrum. Let's say. Um, so I'm just going to throw out some radical ideas and you're just going to give me on a scale of one to 10, how much you would support them. And, 10 being absolutely. Yeah. And, and some of them, it's going to, they're going to create like, you know, moral personal conundrums for you because some of these policies will be, you know, state controlled yeah. policies, right? As policies tend to be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how about this? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, I'll give you a softball, right? Uh, complete uh, uh, ending the fossil fuel subsidies. Yeah, I think I would support it. I mean, again, the the relationship between like fossil fuel and state and big money is so present there. Like if the fossil fuel industry doesn't have the subsidies, it will realize how expensive it is to run all these things. And ideally that would allow, that would incentivize them to, to to scale down but again it might make them it might make the opposite ending all fossil fuel subsidies uh for, for the u.s let's just start with the u.s um ending all fossil fuel subsidies beginning on april 1st 2020 yeah it's three <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, they i mean i want to put okay. them in this crisis mode of like okay now that we don't have the support of the state like what do we do Will they increase prices for everything, and people end up paying a lot more that we don't have? They don't have the subsidies, but but it could be. I don't know. I mean, okay. a lot of people would not benefit from that. But limiting the number of refrigerators to one per household. Oh my god! Some houses have up to yeah, absolutely. I agree. Limiting the number of air conditioners to one per household. Oh, that's that's that involves a different conception of of family and household and communal areas and stuff and i think you still have fans everywhere yeah i think we would we would we would easily get it would take us a year or so (laughs) to get used to not having air conditioners but if the entire global north south does it i think the u.s could definitely do it okay so so far you're a yes on everything yeah okay um carbon tax yeah tax it and then invest tax the tax action. money not to like the elite, but actually on on infrastructure. So a lot of anarchists think that I mean, we could use the state to to further liberate people as a way to create autonomous communities. That doesn't mean we're like completely against everything. Like if the state builds a good road, we or if the state builds like a good park, it ben- it's a public good. I th- I, we want more investments in public good because they can create the conditions for more autonomous communities. So I'm not, I wouldn't be against everything that the state does because there is the potential for anti-state communities benefiting from state funding. This, the U.S. decided that it was going to s- suspend its presidential election and that it was now going to become just two branches of government, the legislative branch and the judicial branch oh my god no executive branch so the federal government would just be run by congress and that congress would vote on to confirm um, members of cabinet that would be nominated by members of of the legislature i mean the the more decentralized the better the more collective accountability the better the more people you have 
challenging each other's authority and the more scientific based and more like debate based political system the better like i do agree that giving so much power to a single person is completely unsustainable and and scary and problematic but as a way to think of other ways of 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 enacting democracy and of participating it could be interesting i would just Mm. Okay. I would do it just because let's see what happens. I mean, it, the root causes aren't really challenged of the state and like how power is transmitted between people and government, but mm-hmm. it takes the control over one person that has potential power over like atomic bombs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. A complete ban on a complete ban on uh, chopping down any tree for any reason. <laughs> I would say that except except dead trees. Only dead except trees. dead we can only use dead trees. You can only chop down dead trees. Um, you can still you can trim trees. I, I mean so So this also means like no building material out of wood. Like but also not destroying forests and stuff. I mean Right. Just like like from world without the infrastructure to like construct a world that looks like it sounds like pretty like what would we do yeah but also i would say like indigenous communities have a different relationship to the land than we do so it's fine if like indigenous people do whatever they want in their sacred land i think they can cut their trees they yes or no i would say like sure just just ban on all on any trees like if you cut down a tree you're going to jail for murder for murder yeah giving trees sure let's okay. do it how about this free speaking of jail freeing all prisoners worldwide tomorrow tomorrow just freeing all prisoners again if there's no infrastructure to support <laughs> the prisoners it doesn't i mean what do you mean there's no if there's no just they just get released into society they get they released are. i mean that's that would be amazing of course we need certain spaces to like we need so what we need mental health services. We need like no, no, rehab you, services. You don't have that. They just get released into society. Just release them all. Yep. Most of them are there for misdemeanors and for selling drugs anyways. Okay. Not even selling drugs, just like um, possessant of drugs, like the grand majority. And the U.S. has the highest prison population than any other place in the world. But also, mm-hmm. it's it sounds irresponsible, but I, I, I support it because... So- so you'd release all prisoners. Release all prisoners and okay. and burn all prisons. Would you re- would you um, rewrite the law? So would you rewrite the law against murder to be? Um, w- how would you rewrite the law against murder? Would you say like instead of jail time, what would be the punishment? Rehab. I mean, murder, murder, rehab for murder. So so we think that. <laughs> A lot of <laughs> going off the rails. So I'm glad you're using a pseudonym on this pod, Miranda. Yeah. So so <laughs> a lot of anarchists don't. A lot of anarchists see like discontent between people as being like tied to economic, social, and like political purposes. I think we would need to study the main reasons for murder. If it's like gender violence, I mean, if it's all this stuff, there should be a process of of rehab that involve i mean how how effective is is um prison at actually challenging 
the 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 core issues that are that are problem and i think mm. there's an entire strand called um it's not it's restorative justice that looks at instances of like violence or crime as a way like how do we make this a learning opportunity in to radically transform the conditions that generated um the crime to begin with and and a lot of the issues have to do with poverty and job insecurity yeah. and fucking jobs and lack of education system. But if, if we have a radical transformation in society, we will also have a radical transformation in in crime and what kind of crimes are 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 produced. But also, I'm not gonna. I do I do think that people are can be very very evil and do crimes just of that but i will understand that from like a mental health more psychological um mm. perspective hmm. i have to say this is maybe one of the my favorite segments i've ever done on the show <laughs> this is fantastic um <laughs> and, and so let, let's bring this all all the way back home because i i know i know uh, we're probably running out of time here um but to the coronavirus yes and this is still the same segment by the way but would you shut down all schools nationwide tomorrow? Because because think about all the parents that then would have to stay home from work. A lot of them maybe they, they need the money to make their next rent check. You know, there's a lot of consequences to think about. Yeah, here, we just don't have the infrastructure for like students not to go to back home because a lot of students also depend on lunch. And right. breakfast that schools provide. Okay. So you a lot of schools, no. a lot of students are also homeless. This is the first policy you've said no to. So you wouldn't close the schools. Because it would eventually right. be more of a burden for working class families okay. that would have to take time off from work. And that would completely destabilize okay. the precarious situation that they already live in. Yeah. And then having to take care of kids. It's just there's no infrastructure for that. Instead, we should see of how schools themselves could be used to increase education awareness and be more involved in their immediate community yeah would you ground all air travel starting april 1st so this gives people time to go home like you announce it today you're not stranding like you know parents away from their kids you're saying like april 1st um there's no air travel until we until things get better like indefinitely like did italy stop all air travel i don't know i know china re severely reduced it i mean it and a be... lot of it is was economical it's just that people were canceling i got an email today from my flight next week frontier airlines said like if i want to cancel it i can for oh, free really? for, with with an out charge because hmm. they so i might have to do that I mean, I would say like non-essential flights. Like if your if your tourist vacation to the Bahamas got canceled, but it's I like it's me going to my friend's bachelor's party. It's a once in a lifetime thing. Is that non-essential? It seems essential to me. It seems essential. It's it is it my is only opportunity to do that. You would end up hating the state a lot more if they canceled it. So so would you ground all flights? Yeah, sure. You do that, <laughs> okay. Also, did yeah. you see the data coming from China that, like, the carbon emissions have like drastically lowered because of the of all the state sanctions and like restrictions and like flights and everything. Yeah, that's true for the Earth. I mean, and and flights are the most, are one of the most 
carbon intensive. Can we re- let's reverse fuel. this? Can you ask me a, a few of these? Just give me um, give me some extreme policies. Some extreme policies in in or, in any. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, households can only have one car. At most, one car. Oh, I I like that a lot. Just one car. I like that a lot. Because yeah. in in the fifties, it switched to more to two cars. Yeah, I like I more. like the one car. So thing. one car. Okay. One good. car max. Um, like um, all student debt is canceled. Um, oof. see, what's tough is like I've been paying off my loans. So like, yeah. do I get that money back? <laughs> <laughs> Me, I already I paid. You know what like I mean? I'd be a little jealous already. if the next guy just like gets to, you know for free. I've already paid off a bunch of my loans. You 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 will get paid back. All student debt is canceled. Um, I think that. Oh, I, I will get paid back. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm for that. Okay, at that there's this there's a, a policy that's being written that whenever somebody turns 25, they the government gives them a hundred grand just because they turn 25. All right, I basically think to to clarify. Wait, so when someone turns, just go back to the last policy for a second. So for mm-hmm. the for the loan thing, what I yeah. essentially think should happen is that these loans should basically turn into a grant. You know, because mm-hmm. I feel like the same way that high school is public education people go to high school for free yeah you should be able to go to college and learn and and work you're doing a lot of work it's it takes work to to um, learn skills and contribute in that way to to the workforce um um so i definitely think that you should get get reimbursed for that work that you're doing that contribution you're you're making to literature to research in important fields like grad students are I met a grad student who's researching a way to make a cheap solar panel instead of like having to do this intricate kind of pattern. He's like, what if you can just take this random material and make a solar panel out of it? Mm-hmm. Like that's fascinating and that's important. So, so institutions, so first of all, undergrad should be free at this point of society, the same way high school became free at a certain point. People used to just go to school till they're 14 and then work. Now it's 18. Now let's move it to 22. People are living longer anyway. Yeah. Um, but also grad students, like they're doing meaningful work. This research often serves the public good in many ways. So I think this, that when you apply for a FAFSA loan of say 20,000 a year or whatnot, that's yeah. what I got. Like make, just make it a grant. If you qualify, not everyone gets it, but if you, if you qualify, if you're not some, you know, rich kid that can afford to can pay his way through school, um, yeah, you should be able to get money to go to school. Yeah. So in that sense, I believe in loan forgiveness. What I really believe is turning those loans into a grant. Yeah. So what if instead of the government giving you like credit back on your loans, they just said like we'll subsidize like your rent and your and your food or your transportation, the equivalent of how money how much money you already paid. I think that maybe I'm I'm open to that. I think it's trickier because now you're. You're getting into different sectors of the economy, whereas mm. this is just we're paying for school. Yeah, but I think people should still like have their choice of where they want to live and what they want to eat, and yeah. how they want to, if they want to bike, if they want to train, yeah. whatnot. Um, so, what was your next one? Oh, so whenever somebody turns twenty-five, just because they turn twenty-five, the government gives them a hundred grand. Every every single every single per, every single citizen, I guess. I think that would be disastrous disastrous 
There's not enough 100 grand. I think people there. just like wouldn't work and would just like party. For, <laughs> they would just for, party and they would just complain that the government isn't getting them enough. After they already <laughs> received never 100 be, grand? Because yeah, when you're 25, you're stupid and you believe uh, the government shit. Uh, they're, they're only giving me 100 grand. Like, they should give me 250 grand. You, you know? don't think if you give a mouse a cookie. You don't think it would make them more economically responsible and more forward long term thinking of like, investing or or feeling so the 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 logic behind this potential policy that people are writing is that it gives people the opportunity to 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 enjoy but also to to construct a future for themselves from 25 i think that the government should um hmm i i I just think I think it's one. It's it's just too much money, mm-hmm. and then B. I think that so much work needs to be done in terms of like when I think of Green New Deal, yeah, I think of creating jobs for people, federal jobs to build the infrastructure we need to build mm-hmm. the windmills and the solar panels and uh, a silver pasture and and even the research to research alternatives to refrigerants and yeah. air conditioning um, chemicals. So. I don't think that money should just be given to everyone for free. I think that money should be given to people maybe to, to research new technologies or to work. Yeah, so the money should be reinvested in like infrastructure and in institutions that are doing really good work. I think that if people want government jobs, good government jobs, skilled government jobs in research or unskilled government jobs that require like labor, I think those should all be available. There should be no, there should be no unemployment. No. If people want a job, there should be there's work to do in this country. Yeah, there's a lot of work we need to do, um, but I don't think people should just be given given money. Okay. I think people should be given jobs. Um, and then and maybe it should be an option, like a public option. Yeah. Maybe the last one: um, all borders are abolished tomorrow. There's no borders. Oh wow! So this is this is something that I've been actually on for a while. Um, I've been a, like a believer in. I would say I was a big believer in open borders probably like maybe three years ago. Not as something tomorrow, though. Yeah. As like a kind of a guiding light, ideologically speaking, and say like, you know, be great. Like if the vision of the future, say in 2100, was like if there was just if we had just a freedom to travel everywhere and everybody in the world had that freedom to. There were no borders and you could go wherever you, you want. If we did that today, it would be total chaos. But if... If we kind of like planned to get to that point in a, um, by 2100 and every policy we instituted, we had with the, the general guiding principle of this has to be towards the goal of yeah. opening borders. Yeah. Um, that I'm for. But I, 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 so I'm for like reaching that state eventually. But I think to just open borders tomorrow would create would create chaos and panic i um and it's important to recognize that like the one percent already benefits from like open borders like if you're wealthy you can travel wherever you want and like do whatever you want any part of the world but the logic behind open borders specifically from like anthropologists and, and anarchist um david graber is that if suddenly tomorrow we had open borders cities would compete against each other and realize if they want to keep people in their city, they will invest in their own yeah. city. Yeah, that was the next thing I was thinking of. 
um, is is government accountability. Um, yeah. You have a lot of these dictatorships, people in Nicaragua who want to leave. Maybe they, where are they going to go? People in Venezuela, where are yeah. they going to go? People in Syria, where are they going to go? Like people in Syria, at best they went to, they go to refugee camps yeah. in Egypt um, or Jordan. But if you have open borders, then governments need to um, make their governments attractive to people. Exactly. The same way like mayors of towns try to recruit people. To stay in their town because... But at the same time, there also is redlining and there's exclusionary zoning and there's yeah. mayors who don't want certain people in their towns. Yeah. Uh, you have an open border, but you don't have... So like maybe there's not a wall, but there's there's closed borders in the, in the sense that there's like there's zoning and there's property restrictions and there's an economic gap. Um, but that being said, I do think that a fantastic aspiration for humanity is to reach a point where we can go wherever we want on this earth that we all share. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So this was a long conversation. Uh, Miranda, Dallas Caius, um, do you have any final things you want to discuss? I, I know we had a lot of topics on, on the agenda I wanted to get to, but it's, it's uh, almost 10 o'clock here. The coronavirus is in full swing. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, we can talk about, I mean, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you, you two options yeah. and I'll let you decide. Uh, the option number one is coming to the question of, is the earth alive? Mm. Um, option number two, if we want to talk about, the kind of future that like Elon Musk is imagining for, for the earth. Hmm. To, like private space adventure. It would be. And to, how it times to climate change and stuff like that. Let's talk about the, the Elon Musk one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, I think we both agree that the earth is alive. So we've moved on from that. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and also cause I read about that one in advance of this. Uh, but I don't know what you mean by Elon Musk's future, so I'm yeah. interested in hearing about that one. So, so with Elon Musk, in terms of like this private company investing a lot in like space exploration and being at the avant-garde of like colonizing Mars and and seeing Mars as an opportunity, my concern is that it's still done under this kind of like capitalist mindset, in the sense that it's easier to imagine us colonizing Mars than kind of unionizing tesla for example he's he said in a interview that if people can't afford to go to mars that he is willing to give loans out so that people can work at mars so he's he's like exporting this capitalist economic relationship to another planet and perpetuating that kind of mindset and that is compatible with his very visionary thinking and technology forward kind of um, mentality. Another example is it's easier for him to imagine a series of tunnels underneath LA only for Tesla cars than it is completely reimagining public transportation in the city, for example. So I'm, I'm afraid that the future the luxurious techno technologically forward future that he's imagining is only accessible to those who can afford it or for those that are willing to take out loans and and live in this in this world that he has created 
Um, but at the same time, I do celebrate the fact that he's been challenging fossil fuels and creating like energy, so it's like sustainability that way. And but it's this this vision of like the the scientific, technological, creative, entrepreneur, visionary, innovative kind of mm-hmm. business forward dude that I have like that a lot of people look up to and he's like a figure yeah. I, as I, like the top minds but I still guess I, I, do, I don't see him as an example of um, like the, an embodiment of capitalism and the 1% at all I see Elon Musk more as a a kind of a creative inventor guy that just wants to have a build legacy. shit and yeah. and take risks and I mean the real capitalists are conservative with with their risk taking it's the people who run General Motors and yeah. they want fossil fuels he's he's doing electric cars is is his kind of thing he's very much outside the system and he's having all these crazy ideas um, that don't make money now that they make yeah. that maybe they make money later um, but. He's he's researching. He's to me. He strikes me more as just like an interested science person who just has a very, very. He thinks very differently from the average person, um, and part of what's what's maybe influenced that is one of the jobs I did for work. And I don't know how much I'm always able to talk about work, but it's at the <laughs> end of the podcast, and I use a pseudonym anyway. But I was writing a proposal on behalf of uh, the, the state department of transportation to designate um, one of the interstates as um, like electric vehicle ready as having certain electric vehicle infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that the federal government, who we agree is, is capitalist. The government's capitalist. Yeah. yeah. Sure. That they're kind of compatible in this. Um, there are a couple different kinds of electric vehicle stations that you can count to create a corridor, you know, classic two points, make a line, two points, make yeah, a yeah, corridor. Yeah. So on this particular interstate, you need a certain um, collection of dots to make a corridor and Tesla charging stations do not count. So mm-hmm. in proposing this Tesla does not count because they're not considered public. They're only compatible with Tesla cars. Yeah. So it's almost like the government Elon Musk is operating outside yeah. the, the structure, the existing structure of society. He's re, he's really trying to do his own thing. Yeah, Elon Musk is almost like this little mini revolution, and the rest of the government is like, no, we want structure that's public, like in our sense, you know that. Um, so, to me, and it doesn't make sense to collaborate. Like it doesn't make sense for for a partnership. No, it there. opened up more questions than answers because you would think that you know Elon Musk, I, he would want his charging ports to be privatized. No, 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 or to be, or to be recognized by the government yeah. as contributing to the system, to the network of electric vehicle infrastructure. But if his ports aren't com- compatible, and it just like made me wonder. It made me wonder why that is, and it's not recognized at all. Like, mm. so it just it seemed to be like he was this kind of figure that's sort of that's not embraced by the establishment. Yeah. Um, so I don't see him like representative of 
of that the same way that I might see as like, okay, Bill Gates, he's like a capitalist, you know, entrepreneur, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Elon Musk is like, he's a different cat to Mm -hmm. me. I, I'm afraid of how how like apolitical he's presenting like technology and like the future being like being kind of shying away from answering questions about like society and like systems of domination or like oppression or like social justice stuff is it's I mean, you're not going to say something out of line that could ultimately like counsel you or affect you or whatever. Um, but it is kind of separating technology from the actual lived experience of like of people and communities and then the other thing that I, that I want to title puerto rico is that he he offered to build a a a solar grid electric grid for puerto rico after hurricane maria and kind of asked this opportunity for private business to like have more power over instead of, of of state responses and it was never actually built but what it's 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 the amount of power that he has but i want to see that benefit the the commons and it might it might be in ways that i'm not recognizing it but i i i worry about it yeah i i think that i there's a lot more stuff that i worry about i think the world needs right now we need people like Elon Musk who are inventors who are interested in many of the, the things we need to be interested in, um, like electric vehicles. Like we, we clearly we do need to transition to electric cars. Yeah. We just, we need that to happen. Um and, you know, it's great that that he's doing that as opposed to doing research on um you know Yeah. Got yeah. on you know nuclear weapons or God knows you know what I mean yeah. like you need you need people who are actually doing things that are trying to make the world more sustainable in many respects um, but I, I thought it was interesting though that when people think of the electric car they think of the Tesla but Tesla is not being recognized like in the international federal highway system as like part of that existing infrastructure even though it's the most recognized yeah name brand name out there so it's it's I, I want to, I got to find out more of that, more about that. And I wonder what Elon, if this is by his design or if this is, this is something that, you know, I wonder whose kind of decision that is. And I, I do celebrate the fact that his m- plans and models are public domain. Right. And he's incentivized people to adopt his plans. And, and if they make something better, then that's good. Yeah. And it it could be a lot worse if he completely patented everything and prefer, pro, prohibited other people from building their own electric cars because that's yeah. not the point. And there's there's the so many billionaires that are just are in businesses that are just wrecking havoc on the world with between fossil fuel industries, the meat industry. There's just there's so many more. Let's say say enemies enemies of uh, you know the environment. Yeah, uh, and Elon Musk is like. It, He's one of the more known because he's such a he has these crazy ideas, but they're 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 pro uh, environment in many ways. Mm-hmm. And he's also he's against like um, artificial intelligence. And he's one of the guys that speaks out against that a bit. Yeah. Despite like the perception of him as this, you know, technological like robot guy, he's actually a bit of a Luddite when it comes to that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. 
Yeah. He's, um, there's, yeah, there's not light. Not, I mean, I go, you know what I mean? I go overboard, yeah. but like he's speaking out against like the dangers of artificial intelligence. He's not like full steam ahead. We need to all go to Mars, but he's saying like, look, there are unintended consequences. We need to be careful. The point is he's being thoughtful into the, in terms of the products he's creating. Yeah. And Whereas a lot of, for a lot of billionaires, there's no product at all. They're just like transform. They're just like redirecting money and they make a billion yeah. dollars. He's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. interested in what the product is. Yeah. And and yeah, he's interested in in in, in producing a legacy uh, before and after, and like being known as like introducing these these products, as you say, that have changed the way that we live and like and we relate to each other. And he is he's asking for more responsibility in terms of not just embracing AI, but also recognizing that there's still so much things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many things we don't know. <clears throat> coronavirus <laughs> all right well set you uh stay safe you listeners out there uh miranda it's been a been a pleasure this has been a great conversation Thank i learned so a lot uh, i can't say that i'm an anarchist but i i understand what it's about now and i definitely uh i'm gonna finish reading desert and we'll talk again i'm sure um so yeah thanks for coming on the pod no thank you so much for having me